Welcome back to Many Windows, the podcast about education of all kinds and all of its forms. My name is John Cassie, and I'm joined as always by my dear friend and co-host. Jennifer McGlamory. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, John. All good? Good, yeah. Yeah. We're recording this episode today in Jennifer's lovely house in the remotest <laughs> woodlands above Los Angeles. Yes. And, and it's lovely. We have finally a properly nice day. Yes. It's been yeah. cold and rainy in yeah. May in when May. we're recording this. Yeah. Very yeah. strange. Yeah. I always like to put a little bit of uh, local context in for my dear friends in the in the East listening who are still shoveling snow in May and are, you know, <laughs> complaining to me. And I'm like, oh, I know it's so chilly. It's 62 degrees. <laughs> like, hate you. Um, so our topic today is a notion in contemporary education that has received a lot of attention but may not be fully or completely understood by educators, by policymakers, by parents, and by students. And that is this idea of STEM or STEAM. Okay. Now, Jennifer, when I say STEM or STEAM, what does that resonate for you? What, what, is, what does that call to mind? Well, I was thinking about how in education we tend to take a specific concept and then just use it egregiously to mean a lot of different things that are no longer related to what it was originally intended. Right, right. right. Or we use it as shorthand, maybe, for yeah. many, many different things. Yeah, and that's true. I hear, you know, there are now STEM and STEAM schools, right. STEM and STEAM programs, right. summer camps, right. all of these things that I think are marketing themselves on this phenomena right. that we think is new, and yet what you're going to tell us today is, you know, there's nothing new in education, right? Or there's nothing new in anything. It right. all goes back uh, in time uh, to uh, uh, other elements of history. So right. for me, I think about how can I add more STEAM or STEM into my middle school? And what does that look like in a traditional middle school that is – uh, 53 minutes of English, and then you move to 53 minutes of math, and then you move mm -hmm. to, you know, and everything is really separated, right. whereas I believe the, the idea behind it is is integration. And yeah. that's where we struggle in the more traditional settings of school is that integration. Correct. So some schools just completely turn that on its head. I want to know how can I integrate these concepts right. of the integration of science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics for STEM, you know? Right. Um, how do we integrate this uh, in my traditional model in, right. in an um, effective way without saying we are going to now become a project-based learning school? and Because uh, there are schools that have done that. Right. Uh, and that's not something that's really open to me. You know, I see charter schools doing that. That's not really open to me. So that's what I want to explore some of the concepts of what this really means and how it could ultimately look in my school. Right. STEAM is, is, a, is a notion, right, that is meant to encourage the, the school, the teacher, the learner to integrate across the disciplines of science and technology, engineering and math, STEM, right, and then as design thinking and human-centered design and aesthetic design 
became something that folks were talking about in this context as well. They added arts, and it became sort of steam, okay? Your sense that it's integrating is exactly what makes this different from all the historical kind of movements mm. that came before it, right? Because, you know, previously, we were all about the silos, right? Let's put this thing here and this thing here and this thing here, and sort of never the twain shall meet, because we really want to be concerned about developing specializations, okay? STEAM, conceptually, particularly as you go down in grades from out of a high school into a middle or into a lower school context, it's really about thinking about these disciplines and forming each other rather than trying to reify each of them within its own sort of framework, right? So science and technology, engineering, and math. Okay, we'll start with those and then we'll kind of integrate the A in sort of at a, at a later time. Now, you had mentioned some history things, okay? And we had talked, uh, listeners, in the pre-show about some of the context of these disciplines. Why, why do we care? Why do we care now? Why did we ever care? Because historically, these are not the disciplines that education prior to the industrial age cared about. If you were going to be properly educated in 1830 or 1840, you were going to go to a school like Amherst College or Harvard or Oxford or whatever, and you're going to learn how to be a proper member of the gentry or of sort of the elite or the ruling class. What does that mean? You're going to learn Greek and Latin. You're going to learn rhetoric. You're going to learn how to play a musical instrument. It's the classic Renaissance man, like the Castiglione, like literally the classic Renaissance man, education. But there's no practical intention in that education. It's meant to make you a gentleman. And not a gentle lady because women were not admitted to these schools. Right. As, you know, as a rule, right? Which is why you end up with schools like Radcliffe, Sarah Lawrence, etc., because there are plenty of people who say, well, this is ridiculous, right? Why would, we, why would we focus our training on only elite men when we want our gentle ladies to be as sophisticated, okay? That's for another topic. Once industrialization begins, begins in Britain in the 1700s, it's getting off the ground in the United States in about 1810, the steam engine, the cotton gin, you know, these sort of classic inventions. Once it starts, you get a movement towards educating, towards these new practices and, 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 uh, 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 and economic intentions, okay? You can see the example of this in the way that many states have founded their university systems, it's one of the great mysteries that I sometimes, you know, I will talk to students and they'll say, well, I don't get it. Why is there a University of Michigan and a Michigan State? Hmm. Why is there a University of Texas and a Texas A&M? Why is there a University of California and a California State University? It doesn't make any sense. It makes absolute sense if you understand that one of those systems is designed to reinforce that 
America 1.0. Oh, oh, gentle lady, uh, it's the Tudor period in England kind of approach to education. That's the University of Michigan, the University of Texas, and the University of California. Those are all the classic liberal arts research institutions that in their founding were meant to train elites to stay elite, okay? Now, they've become other things over time, but that's what they were founded for. Michigan State, Texas A&M, Agricultural and Mechanical, you probably get where I'm going with this, California State University, these are all industrial age-informed institutions. Let's train people to help make agriculture more industrial so that we can generate more food. Let's learn about engineering and technology. Let's work to improve the punch card system because we had computing in the 1870s and 1880s. In fact, the, 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 one of the most famous examples of computers transforming society was, I believe, the 1890 census, which was completed entirely on punch cards and which generated vastly more data than any previous census and did it in record time. Hmm. Okay, All of that comes out of your A&Ms or your Michigan states. Okay, uh, So I would imagine that before, you know, before this time, all of these trades were learned as apprenticeships. Correct. Right? Correct. So what, do you, what was it that was the demise of that system? Why, why did we – was it this industrialization? Was it yeah. uh, the, this factory mentality? Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was scale yeah. and industrialization. Okay. The apprentice journeyman craftsperson mm-hmm. system okay, is about teaching an individual – how to reduplicate the work of the master, okay? It's all within these kind of guilds that maintain uh, elite control over their craft, right? Uh, We're not going to make the building of a cart or the milling of flour or any of these things general skills because the only person who can do them is the person who has the skill set. And the person who has the skill set is only going to pass it on to a handful of people so as to maintain the scarcity value. But industrialization is all about turning what was a craft into something that a machine can do at scale. Okay, So you think about all of the industries that, that industrialization transformed. Uh, weaving, shoemaking, um, uh, all of the uh, and anything in textile mm-hmm. uh, work, uh, machine machine parts. If you can make a machine that can make parts to make other machines, virtually everything you might make, you can make in a factory, and you take the workers who used to be high-skilled craftspeople, and now you, you essentially subvert their whole industry, take it into the factory, and you de-skill the work, which means that an industrialist who owns a factory can now make 5,000 shoes a day rather than a craftsman making 50 pairs a week at cost, 
Now the industrialists can make all those for, for nothing, right? Of course, the de-skilling of work is something that we're dealing with right now in, you know, in, in our society, which isn't being transformed by industrialization. It's being transformed by the information age. Well, I okay? was just thinking that yeah. right now. It's the same thing. How, but isn't this... Uh, you know, this is a new phenomenon that computers are going to take nope. over all of the jobs and nope. uh, like it's never happened before. And what you're saying is is reminding me exactly of what people are going through right now as they're thinking about what careers are going to be available right. for our middle school and high schoolers when they graduate from college and just how it's a different kind of career than um, exists right now. Right. And if you don't have the ability, skill, capacity to figure out how to reinvent yourself, if you, if you see yourself as something in a silo, my contention is the later we get into the 21st century, the more that person is going to struggle. Okay? I make this point all the time, uh, twice a week at school. The class of 2034... We're recording this in 2019. The class of 2034 is in our school right now. They're in TK. Right. Okay. Those people were born in 2015. They will be at work in the 2080s. We can't continue to be informed by legacy thinking from an industrial age that at its time was revolutionary and transformative. But it was from the 1870s, 1880s. This is when our education system as it exists now was created. And it was way better than what was before. But how can it possibly continue to serve unless we really project ourselves forward to what do these, what do these five-year-olds need? Even your high school students, they were born in 2001. Yeah. Okay, well... Let's say that life expectancy and but all that continues to go as we, you know, as we suspect it will. Okay, so those people are working the 2070s. Their children are at work in the 22nd century. Hmm. This is the work we're doing in education. I'm, I don't, I, I'm not as worried about my students and their graduation and what they're going to do at 18. I want them to come back to me when they're 40 and say, I was well prepared to be 40. And you're not going to get that in the silo system. Just like the people who bet, bet, bet everything that you'd never be able to turn a factory into a place where you could build shoes so fast that you wouldn't need a cobbler. Those people who bet on cobbling found themselves destitute. It's tragic, right? It led to widespread radical disruption of tens of millions of people's lives, but opened the door for a whole host of new ways of thinking and doing, right? So what you had was a system that, that reinforced one kind of learning and became ever more tolerant of another kind. It took a while for those A&Ms and Michigan States and, you know, that kind of thing to, to rise. But really, once industrialization is well established, 1870s, 1880s, these universities grow ever more in their, in their importance. 
And when the standard curriculum of the American high school is being designed in the early 1900s, well, obviously science is going to be part of that. Mathematics is going to be part of that. To them, the industrialists, the Carnegies of the world, there's a reason why the standard unit of learning in a high school or a college is called a Carnegie unit, hmm. right? Because the Carnegie, Carnegie and his type, wealthiest industrialists, people who are you know, doing work at the University of Chicago, whatever, to make, in, to make industrialization even more standard, we got to standardize people. Because if we don't, then how do we train them? What are we paying them for? It's too hard to train all these people who've been miseducated to become part of the factory system. Let's standardize everything so that we know that wherever they come from, they've got a standard skill set. And what should that skill set include? Well, we want people to be able to read and write because in these systems, that matters. In 1750, reading and writing doesn't matter if you're a weaver or a, a cart maker or barrel maker, right? It's really, do you have the skill set to do your trade? Now these are more generalist practices, right? So English and, you know, uh, uh, you know reading and writing, mm -hmm. there's no interest in literature. It's all about can you function within the factory context, right? Science and math. And, you know, because the people who are there care about the, the development and sustaining a democratic society, social science, history, and, and, and those kind of things. Because, you know, Jefferson cares about that. So we'll, we'll pull it in, right? They don't themselves necessarily care about it, but Jefferson did, so we'd better care about it, right? So you get all of that working together to make a system of education that everyone thinks is going pretty well. Oh, we won World War II. We have the biggest economy in the world. It's the 1950s. From the perspective of the 1950s, elites and industrialists, what could, what could be better? This is the country at its golden age. And yet, I think everyone knows that if you aren't one of those industrial elites... It's not, it's not that great. It's not much, it's not very gold. In 1957, everyone becomes concerned that we're going to struggle in this country. Why? Because the Soviet Union in 1957 launches the Sputnik satellite into space. And that just it causes a, an existential panic. We're behind. We're behind. We're behind. <laughs> They're beating us. Right. The dirty communists are beating us, right? I mean, really, it's this kind of talk, right? And, and so we have to do something. Quote, do something. We have a problem. I'm making air quotes. Great radio. <laughs> Great radio air quotes, right? But we have a problem. We need to address it, okay? The Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration, make deep commitments to funding pure science, S, applied science, E, because engineering is just the application of natural science to solve real-world problems. Okay, You mean it existed before robotics? Is that what you're That's trying right. to tell me? <laughs> no. That's right. Yeah, right. Which is another example of us trying to industrial age-ify right. Right, what this is supposed to mean. It isn't robotics. Robotics is part of it, right? Right. Technology is, the T in STEAM is often meant to be computer science, right? right? 
Well, we care about that a great deal. And mathematics, because mathematics is like physics. It undergirds mm -hmm. everything. If you don't have a sense of how to comprehend the world mathematically, you can't understand physics. If you can't understand physics, then the rest does none of it, none of the rest matters. It's all founded in physics, right? So Eisenhower and Kennedy, deep commitments to, to fix what they see as problems in science and engineering and technology. What do these generate? Project Mercury, the Apollo program. When Kennedy says we're going to put a man on the moon, why? Because it's hard. <laughs> okay. This is all emerging from that space race Sputnik kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The defense, uh, a DARPA, the defense applied research. Oh my God, I'm not going to remember what it is. DARPA is the Defense Department Skunk Works, hmm. which is it's. Let's take this crazy problem that probably can't be solved and find a solution for it. Okay, DARPA created. Uh, for its own purposes, for its own internal communication, and just wild experimentation purposes, something called the ARPANET in the late 1960s. ARPANET became the Internet. Hmm. So the entire Internet system originally came from the ARPANET, which was founded by DARPA, which came into existence because of Sputnik. Okay, This is how these things tie together. Sputnik in the 1950s, we spend a great deal of money, but as is often the case in the United States, we sort of lose our focus, okay? And then in the 1980s, you've got the seminal report from the Reagan administration, A Nation at Risk, that says, no, no, we really are in trouble. To the degree that we are, there are real problems with that report, mm -hmm. um, because when you basically put people who don't know anything about education in charge of researching education, what you generally get is uh, marginally productive suggestions and and uh, and findings, and a lot of politicization and misalignment and and misses. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so a nation at risk continues to drive us forward, but it's a it's a flawed report. No child left behind. Two thousand one gravely flawed law with a good intention at its heart, let's improve, improve, improve standards, et cetera. Um, and the law that replaced it, the ESSA, which is more or less motivated by the same, by the same goals. Sadly, they were all written by, uh, non-educating old men mm. by and large who grew up in the industrial age. So what they're doing is fixing a problem that needed to be fixed, not in 2001, but in 1940, okay, and applying the standards of 1940 to 2001, and that creates a real problem. Education innovators who are saying, no, 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 too many silos, standards to what end, critique these systems, and one of the ways they do is through the emergence of this STEAM movement, which really begins after No Child Left Behind in 2001, right? So we've got these notions, science and technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. And we still kind of do them in silos, right? Now, 
Jennifer, we talked in the pre-show a little bit about how an elementary school, without building any specific spaces for this kind of work, might do some of the work of integrating these notions. And I'd ask you the question, why is it that in English language curricula in elementary school, why isn't there more science reading in English language? And you had some great thoughts about that, and you sort of you took us in another direction. So share your, your perspectives. Well, first I will say that the big surprise to me when I moved from secondary education, where right. I started, right. Right. to right. elementary was that this silo approach still exists in elementary. You assume because you've got one teacher who has this multiple subject credential and is with a group of kids all day, it is much easier to integrate. And it is, of course, the structure mm-hmm. for integration is is much easier. It's there. The kids aren't moving from one teacher to the next every 50 minutes like they do in secondary. However, what surprised me when I got to elementary is the elementary school teachers have a certain time that they teach math, and then they have a certain time that they're teaching English, and a certain time that they're teaching social studies and science. And there is not that kind of integration that maybe there used to be, and this might be because of standards or textbooks and this whole idea, you know, our textbooks are really um, subject specific Mm -hmm. and they are trying to. So to answer your question, what I'm seeing with our latest language arts textbook adoption Mm -hmm. is, and with the new common core standards in language arts, particularly a focus or a shift away from literature towards informational texts. Mm -hmm. So they're so nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in third grade, second grade, I mean, really even down at kinder, the textbook adoption that we, or the textbook series that we just adopted a few years ago, um, one of the units, two, or let me rephrase, two of the units are on science mm-hmm. and industry, mm-hmm. and two more of the units out of 10 are on um, government communities, some sort of what you would think of as social science topics, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's the myths and fables Mm -hmm. that used to be predominantly what you would think of or was taught during language arts time. Um, And then the character and those structure of plot, those kind of things. Those are more traditionally what you think of being taught in an English language arts curriculum, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they were very separate. They're moving towards this idea that, yeah, absolutely, you can teach science within language arts. And I remember probably the first year or two of this adoption, um, some a fifth grade teacher bemoaning to me that their writing prompt, their writing task mm-hmm. had to do with something about corn and the raising of corn. <laughs> and like, this is all I heard about from the kids tell, you know, every, oh my gosh, we had to read about corn, you know, genetic, genetically modified corn, yeah, and sure. something to do with corn syrup. And I don't even remember all I heard for days was about how they had to write about corn, you know, and they were miserable <laughs> and they had to write. So they were, they were reading a science, a couple of scientific articles because they're learning to analyze and com- compare and contrast at its at its most basic right. um, uh, t- 
pull out information from informational text to cite mm-hmm. their own thinking, their own opinions mm-hmm. as they're doing mm-hmm. um, opinion writing, argument writing, as, as it's being called now, instead of persuasive writing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's now called arg- argumentative writing, so that they are supposed to cite evidence from different texts to strengthen their argument, right. whichever side they're going to take. And they need to be able to take both sides. They need to be able to consider counter-argument, all of that. So there is, I would say, the textbook manufacturer which I believe are really trying to take the common core standards at its essence, which the common core standards, of course, we know the whole reason that they came about is to try and fix some of these problems. Correct. Right? Correct. Uh, The issues that kids come out of school, graduate from high school with a high school diploma, which was supposed to be you know, years ago, if you at least had a high school diploma, right, right, it opened the doors. Now, the the workforce, the colleges are saying, no, they're not, even if they have a high school diploma, they aren't able to think critically, analyze right. uh, documents, uh, write coherent memos, they're, and, and they're just not ready for the workforce, the new work mm-hmm. that is being asked of them. And the colleges are saying that we have to now have all these remediation classes because they're not at college level. Right. So the Common Core standards were supposed to um, fix this gap between high school completion and college readiness. Right. There was this large gap, and particularly for lower-income school districts Areas of poverty, the gap was much larger. We right. know, right? And 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 also, Common Core is designed not just for college readiness, but workforce readiness. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's sort of designed for both. Right. Now, my sort of perspective on that is, well, it's no wonder that the high school diploma doesn't generate college readiness and workforce readiness, because the college, I'm sorry, the high school diploma is being generated by a 19th century entity in the 21st century. Yeah, model. The problem of misalignment of the diploma to readiness is based on the fact that we haven't transformed what high school is, kind of looking backwards. What does the workforce need? That is what the last time we transformed education did. What does the workforce need? What what does it mean to be learned? Let's go back in and redesign these systems, okay? And then for 100 years, they worked. When the economy and when society began to be fundamentally changed again in the 1960s by the transformation from an industrial to an information age economy, well, year by year, as the schools didn't change, they became ever less aligned to what these two next steps are looking for. And now they're they're totally misaligned. I mean, nearly completely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and Common Core is a is a noble effort to try to to try to move in that direction, despite the fact that it gets politically slagged. Mm-hmm. Right. The the intention is 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 there in the right in the right place. And it also goes to try again trying to standardize mm-hmm. what 
all the stu- so what we had before Common Core was every state had its own set of standards. Right. So if you started your education as I have a number of kids in, in my middle school who started in Georgia, Virginia, you know, sure. and then moved to California and there were all these again gaps in their learning or sometimes they had already learned something right and then coming over to California and I already know this it wasn't aligned right the the different um, standards for the different um, states and so that was the other thing that Common Core was trying to do that's where the the name comes from is having a common set like you know we always look at like Japan or something like that and oh they have national standards right right, right. no matter where you can move around and you know but it go just like you were saying historically <clears throat> how we have this desire to standardize and uniform um, uh, anything. Um, I don't know that that's always, I, I understand why, and it's, it's pragmatic and, and there's a need for it. Um, but then we get stuck there. Exactly. Right. We need to, we need to not standardize what a teacher is doing on day 63 of class in the seventh mm-hmm. grade. I'm going to turn my page because the ministry of education has told me <laughs> I need to be talking about, um, you know, the commutative property of addition mm-hmm. because it's October 17th. That was the big right? criticism with the open court. Do you, do you remember this or yeah, yeah. with LAUSD adopted this reading curriculum called open court and it was scripted. Right. Everything that the teacher said to the students, they read from a script from this textbook. Right. And it was to make sure that you didn't have you know, one school, because LA Unified is so huge, right. you know, one school in a more affluent area uh, is, uh, it, those kids are getting a better reading education than a school in a less affluent area because the skills of the teachers, it was trying to mitigate for all of these other things that I think you, you can't, they tried, right? Right. And what I heard, it was universally despised by all teachers. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I, I'm not sure that it ever really did achieve its purposes. I'd be interested to know if anybody uh, has looked at that or knows anything about yeah. that. But that always comes up as we look at textbooks. And I know I always, my, my teachers, there's never a textbook that no. that everybody likes that most of the time that anybody likes. It's the process is all about compromise and what can we live with. That's right. And even the standards, when the Common Core standards came out, it was the same kind of thing. And my teachers, what I tried to reinforce with them, this is just a what we're going to teach. It is not a how we're going to teach it. Right, right. To do it the, the, the open court way, you might as well have a Sony personal instructional <laughs> assistant, uh, you know, in the classroom. Yeah. Because what the people who design those kinds of curricula fail fundamentally to understand is that a teacher is teaching children, not a curriculum. Mm-hmm. And if you've got 20 or 30 kids or 40 kids in front of you, if you're a good teacher, you are mindful of how each of them is doing with regard to the goals that you have set up for the for the year. Mm-hmm. And you're intervening with each of those kids in his or her own way to make sure that that they don't fall behind. Mm-hmm. Or if they're bored, they have an opportunity to advance on their, you know, on their own. This is called differentiation. Mm-hmm. 
but you're trying to differentiate within within your context, right? So to get back to that question you actually asked me um, about elementary school and about right. you know science and English, and you know my answer has to do with the fact that a the textbook that was adopted is trying to yeah. achieve some of these things. Yeah. However, I believe that's not what integration is about. Agreed. So that's where we've got to kind of get back on track and understand, A, it's not simple work. Right. That you can't simply adopt a new set of standards, a new textbook, a new curriculum that is going to do this for you. It has yeah. to be teachers That's right. trained and willing to approach it in a different way. I think that's what... STEM, STEAM is really about. Agreed. It is that it is an approach. It is not just a curriculum or um, even project-based learning. I have seen that kind of watered down, right. formulized. Right. And I think it loses some of its power. But this work for teachers is hard. Yes. Yes. There, it, it requires immense amounts of professional development. Mm. A very high tolerance for risk-taking, which means that faculty need to be nurtured and developed as they take risks. It requires that students be made the agents of their own learning mm -hmm. in ways that sometimes parents don't understand or like. Aren't you teaching? That kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? And it requires a taking of a long view that the more you commit to that long view, the less you can commit to a sort of standards-based hierarchy because that hierarchy was developed years ago to respond to the problem that was put to the committee that did the standard development. Education and the needs of children change over time. And in an age of extremely rapid change, they change so fast that even the, the, the district level is probably too high to, to kind of manage it. Mm -hmm. It's at the classroom level. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you need highly autonomous, very skilled, highly risk-affirming uh, 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 mm. faculty who know their kids and are prepared to bring in project-based learning or are prepared to bring in a bunch of things to respond to what their kids need mindful of what the longer-term goal is. And that's really, really hard to execute. But there are schools that do it, or For schools sure. that are trying to do it. For sure. Right? I'll tell you a little experiment that I tried at the elementary school. Um, I Years ago, I went to a conference and... We got to hear Richard DeFore and his wife speak, and they were they were speaking about um, you know an intervention model in which um, it, that added an enrichment component. So here's let me explain what this looks like. So this is probably early two thousands um, where we were pulling kids out, kids that were not at grade level, were not meeting standards. Okay, they were particularly in elementary school. They would be pulled out. I'm not talking about special ed now. I'm just talking about an intervention model, response to intervention right. model, where they were pulled out into smaller groups, 
and retaught, you know, new methods, new, new teachers, different teachers. They were pulled out for a certain period of the day and it was consistent and, and structured. Maybe it was three times a week. They'd be pulled out and they were given that um, explicit instruction in the, the um, area that they were um, really struggling. And if we're talking about reading, this was, was tested and assessed to figure out what is the really specific skill that they right. are lacking. Right. You know, they would go back and reteach some phonics um, and phonemic awareness and fluency. Like this was, all, this was each a different class or section. So the rest of the kids, the, the problem with that is if you pull these kids out of English class to do this remediation right. uh, or intervention, uh, which was essentially remediation, what's the rest of the class doing that's, uh, that's left with the teacher because they're bringing in extra teachers right. to do this. What's the rest of the class doing? Now you have half a class and you're the teacher. You can't move on with the curriculum or are you moving on with the curriculum? And then those kids are missing out on maybe core novels or, you know, reading literature because the teacher has to find something they can do um, during that time. So this idea was instead of just pulling kids out that everybody for uh, three days a week at a certain time would go to a different class. Oh, interesting. Uh, so some kids were going to their, like in third grade, their and this is what this is how I kind of ultimately interpreted it for my school. So third grade, everybody's. We, I would sit with the third grade team, and we would look at data and group kids and say, okay, this group that is most struggling is still really struggling with some phonics and fluency. The, if they're still struggling with phonics, we're going to maybe put them in a group of. It's going to be five kids, and it's going to be really. Um, intensive mm-hmm. small mm-hmm. group intervention. And then here's this group of 10 kids that's out of 100 that's um, working on fluency. Okay. And so we've got this program that really works well in increasing their fluency. And then this group is just, a, they're a little bit behind and they need some some help with reading comprehension, the specifics of that. Well, so that's, let's say that's 30 out of your 100 kids. Now, <clears throat> granted, at some schools that might be 70 out of your 100 kids. Indeed. Might but be below grade level. Same. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, for my school, it turned out to be about, you know, 30 to 40 that needed the remediation. And then you had this other 40 percent to and above who were at grade level. So but then they were just kind of staying there. So right. can we now include enrichment so that those students can do more? And um, bring back some of those the um, activities that were done where they were we were using things like junior grade books and they're learning to discuss literature mm-hmm. and and argument and start doing some writing things like this. Um, so we did this for a while and it seemed to really work well until we got to about fourth and fifth grade. Okay. Um, by fourth and fifth grade, you can't keep remediating phonics. You got to kind of give up with. With that, okay. If they haven't got phonics by by third grade, find another approach. Yeah, that ship has sailed because they've learned it in kinder, first, second, and some kids just don't have their brain doesn't work in that way. That uh, phonics is very difficult. So uh, that's not where we can't just keep remediating the the kids that are doing that in the same way. In the same yeah. way, come at it another angle. And 
Um, we had more and more kids that when we, kinder through third grade, had this remediation, they were, they were getting up to grade level. So we were at about 70%, 80% of our kids, just about, that were at, at grade level. So instead of having all of these different remediation classes, we had maybe one reading for fourth and fifth grade combined, one to two reading intervention classes, and one to two math. Now we started to add in math for yep. the kids that were struggling with number sense. Everybody else... Instead of doing a language-based enrichment, we started doing more like the secondary electives because yeah. I wanted to try yeah. some less structured, more higher-level thinking. So we had a math enrichment where they were doing math games, like yep. high-level yep. math problems. You know, we have something in our district called Math Field Day where they work for an hour on one problem in groups and it's mm -hmm. a really robust problem so one of my teachers who had helped with that she was working with some of those kids um, who loved math mm -hmm. and really wanted to keep doing more and got bored in their math class during the day because they had mastered right the grade level math right. they wanted to go on they wanted right. to go beyond so I had a couple of teachers who were doing that I had a teacher who was doing more art with kids we did a digital citizenship class mm -hmm. the kids rotated through and then I did something that we called that we called a maker space but it was just building materials a number of different um, things that we bought and kids just came and built things and was shot a marble through this elaborate structure with mm -hmm. shoots that they had put together and, you know, part of, I, I was running that group and part of me is like, this is the most unstructured, you know, I'm not teaching anything. I'm like, Gra grab the kits, you guys. Right. For 45 minutes, three times a week. Right. And do you know that our test scores in math went up and were the highest in the district that year? I'm not remotely grade, surprised. Right. So that was what I started really getting me thinking about. Instead of focusing so much time and energy on remediation, is there another way to do intervention mm -hmm. that involves this very idea of innovation, creativity, and uh, maybe unstructured exploration? Right. One of the things we talked about in the pre-show was the, the idea that we probably overstructure young people's lives in this decade, you know, or our, 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 our approaches to teaching and learning, our approaches to parenting are overly structuring. And I'm, that leads to students who can't do anything unless they're told how to do it so by an adult. I found this article. It was in um, Education Week. It was in 2014 by Ellen Wexler. And she... And it, and it says when, when children, based on this um, research study they did in kindergarten, ultimately the conclusion was when children spend more time in structured activities, they get worse at working towards goals, mm -hmm. making decisions, and regulating their behavior. All things that we want. Which is in middle school, we are dealing with those three things right there. And how do we teach kids? Mm -hmm. We call them executive functioning skills. Right. I'm sure I mentioned it in the last episode. We will probably do a whole uh, episode one day in the future just on executive functioning skills. Almost certainly. Yeah. it's uh, something we're all thinking about. So this study said that many of these self-directed executive functioning skills 
are developed mostly during childhood. Yeah. Right? And it may, it reminded me of an article that I read years ago. It was published in 2008 that stuck with me, and it was called Students at Bat. And it okay. was talking about how <laughs> the demise of the neighborhood baseball game. Yeah. You know, kids don't just run out into the street and call their friends and create this pickup game. Right. Anymore that this doesn't now instead they are involved in leagues mm-hmm. and adult structured activities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the 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 definition of you know a structured activity is anything that's organized and supervised by adults, right? Instead of kids and those neighborhood pickup games, the kids had to figure out how they were going to share their equipment because not everybody had a glove and right. and the things that they need. So they had to work that out. They had to work out the rules. Would there be different rules for kids that are younger that wanted to play? Like, do they get four strikes instead of three? Right. Um, where are the bases? How far should the bases be? How, you know, there was nobody with a rule book. You know, there was no umpire. There was right. no coach who was said, no, these are the established rules that we're going to work under. Right. The kids had to make these agreements themselves. And we don't, I think we have less and less of that. Right. And I'm kind of interested in, so now that that's really gone by the wayside, that the kids aren't running out into the street and playing with one another. However, I know that they are connecting <laughs> virtually I was and just going video there. Games. I was and just I going there. I was going you. there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I got to ask John about this. Can some of these same goals that we had, or you know, we as the adults, the educators in these kids' lives, the goals of those unstructured times, can are some of those goals still met where kids are yes. making decisions? Yes. Through these online gaming. Right, right. This is exactly why so many kids prefer to live their lives in virtual or digital online spaces. Because parents do not understand them. They're not in those spaces. And even if they were, kids could get away from them because they could... The way that a digital space mediates contact is just fundamentally different than in a neighborhood, right? A digital neighborhood is a very different beast, than a physical neighborhood, right? You look at young people who are obsessive about Minecraft. Right. Okay. There's no, virtually no physical violence in Minecraft. It's about building. It's about design. It's about problem solving. And there is no answer. And the game's rules, Minecraft's rules are, are very open-ended. So when I have given instructions to students, very young students, first graders, right? I want you to build me a, an amusement park ride that a giant and a pixie could both use. A direct example of something that I gave to four first graders who I was spending time with last summer. We were in Iceland and Greenland and the Faroe Islands, and as I was telling them stories about, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, ghosts and uh, you know, the uh, fairy people, that, you know, that yeah, everyone place. in Iceland believes yeah. exist, right? right? Right. It's like, okay, well, design me a fairy home. 
Now build this. And now the fairies are getting a visit from a giant, so build them a house. Okay? They want to trade. Build me a port. Okay? On and on and on and on. What do you think your fairy village needs that it doesn't have? All of it's unstructured. And everyone's solution was very different. Okay? Look at online games that require teaming and teamwork. The definitive game right now is probably Fortnite. Mm -hmm. Okay. Games like Rocket League. Games like uh, League of Legends, perhaps for slightly older students, or Super Smash Brothers. Okay. All of these games require in the second-by-second second problem solving in response to innovative challenges that are being introduced by players introducing innovative threats in the environment to their, to their opponent, okay? And what makes these games fun to play for the students who play them is, oh, I've just, I've just encountered an opposition strategy that I've never seen before. What on earth made them think that? And how am I going to overcome it if I see someone who learns that and it becomes what, what in game language is called the new, quote, air quotes again, great radio, meta, the new meta. When you play this game, this practice is almost guaranteed to win. Everyone adopts it and then it doesn't function like that anymore because now everyone knows it and can counteract it. Now you need a new solution to create a new meta, and over and over and over. Well, you can see how kids who are involved in this, yep. in their after-school activity, that this is their new play. That's right. That how frustrating school can be for them. Totally. And so, and schools are notoriously slow to adopt right. uh, new ways and new right. approaches. Right. And I know this is really a, a, you know, your area of expertise. I've seen it tackled just um, in cursory ways by some teachers through something called Genius Hour. Sure. Right? Yeah, Genius Hours are great. So that's where a teacher um, just basically gives students an hour a week that they get to research their own project, problem. You right. know, the teacher can kind of set up, do you want to solve a problem that exists in the world today? Do you just want to research, learn something more about a topic that we just haven't had time to research? You know, and then ultimately they, they have six, eight, ten weeks, and then they present their findings or, or do some sort of action. That's my understanding of, of how I've seen it work. Yeah. Um, a typical model. Typical model. Yep. Yeah. That that can be done in your more traditional setting. Totally. Right. Without radically um, restructuring your entire day and school, uh, you there's little ways to um, integrate some of these things. What are some other things that you've seen? Little ways that schools can integrate more of this kind of thing. Well, genius hours are a good idea. Sort of X periods, right? Um, uh, asking classes to experiment with uh, innovations within design thinking, okay? Um, let's 
let's identify a global or local problem and over the course of the year create a number of different solutions to it. Schools that create entrepreneurship programs are often trying to build towards the goal that you're describing because entrepreneurship is the development of problem identification skills and then bringing in all of the different resources that exist in the world to help address that problem, realizing where gaps in those in your own knowledge and your own learning, I, I, right? I, exactly, right. You know, the students I have who I teach entrepreneurship to, where they sometimes struggle is finding ideas that are real problems that they find equally compelling to work on, mm-hmm. right? And what I've said to them is, look, the entrepreneur is always on the lookout for things that don't work the way they should, Okay. I very frequently cite the work of um, James Dyson, the vacuum cleaner guy, yeah, yeah. right? And what does he say on his television advertisements at the end? I just expect things to work properly. Well, things that don't work properly, you look at every entrepreneur in the world, and podcast note, because you know we, do, we drop a podcast reference in every episode right. of Many Windows, right? How I built this. The NPR podcast about entrepreneurship, ridiculously compelling. Every single person on there found something that didn't work in a thing, in an area where they had some expertise or they had some interest, right? I think women's fashion is too overly complicated. I sure wish there were these nice minimalist pieces that I could just go to the store and buy. Since I can't, I'll create a company to provide them. Now that company is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and on and on and on and on, right? So create those kind of programs. Create spaces in your day or in your week Mm -hmm. where you as the teacher and you as the school aren't in charge and where you're not expecting a standards-based product that you can assess on a rubric to come out of. You're just giving students the opportunity to learn how to riff because we don't give them that opportunity anymore. And that's what we really need. I'm concerned about building metacognitive skills. Can you see the relationship between this piece of literature, this piece of art, and this historical movement all happening at the same time? Do you understand that they all affect each other? Do you understand that you need certain developments in mathematics that generate understanding in physics, which once it's there, can power change in biology, chemistry, etc. And that for all practical purposes, the sciences that we split into biology, chemistry, physics, in 1890, in order to teach them, are not separate. Biophysics, biochemistry, physical chemistry, physical biology. These are all, it's all the same, but we choose to teach them as discrete. And it's ridiculous because what we want is students to see the commonalities. I talk about the fact that in in an industrial age education system that is building towards factory work. 
what you really have to be concerned about is the nodes of information. You have to be able to understand discrete pieces of data and content. And you don't care about how they connect. In the 21st century, a highly networked, highly digitally mediated uh, social and work environment where you can get the nodes by looking at the internet for 10 seconds. Right. Only the most essential nodes should be in your brain. What your brain should be spending its time doing is mapping the network of all of these nodes so that you can discern patterns. This is what big data is about. This is what big mathematics is about. Are there patterns in sets of data we've never even looked at that might tell us something about a problem we have for which we want a solution? Maybe, mm -hmm. but without asking the question, you'll never learn whether there is an answer or isn't. And the problems of the 21st century are global in nature, more complicated than any problems we've ever created for ourselves or that we've ever encountered. And they're not going to be solvable by the tools that we have heretofore used to solve our problems. Make sense? Definitely. I think I'm thinking right now that there are teachers and administrators listening to this thinking, how in the world do I do any of this? Like, it sounds so complex. It sounds like a complete reboot. And I was thinking a place to start. Yeah. And especially in those, um, in those um, subjects like social studies, right. where it feels very much like a list of facts. It can. That you're learning. Yeah, it shouldn't, but it can, right? Uh, and I, I'm, I'm seeing right now we're getting ready for finals at school, and I'm seeing study guides come out, and it sure looks like a list of facts to totally, me, right? Totally, totally, yep. So um, I went to hear McTee and Wiggins um, talk about understanding by design, sure. and they always start with what is the enduring understanding. Yep. This is a place to start. This is a fundamental place that teachers have got to start. What not, you have to ask yourself, what is the enduring understanding or what is the big idea that I'm going to circle back to again and again mm -hmm. in my curriculum? And which it I'm is, not going to answer. Yeah. Right. Well, because it can't be answered. Right. It's so big. You're going to, or right. you're just going to keep answering it in different ways that's with right, each new right. thing that you study, right? Yeah. Yep. Ultimately goes back to this, this, this question, this big question right. that we as a class are going to try and answer by the end of the year. And everything right. that we uh, study, we are going to look at this question again. Um, and in social studies, it can't be, you know, what are, what, what are the effects of, or what are the causes and effects of the Civil War? You know, like, that's not it. That's not that's it. That's not the question. It's, um, you know, it has to be much grander and larger than that. You know, is war necessary? Is like an right. example, right? That when I, is war just? Yes. That kind of thing. Big, right. big ideas. You know, there's got to be scientific ideas as well um, that... Everything, all the integrated sciences, correct? You know, can keep going back to and keep answering, and that would be my challenge. As that would be a place I think every single teacher could start. 
And, um, you know, this is, I think this is going to be a summer episode. Look at your lesson plans, look at your units. And I know a lot of uh, lesson plans and and our books have these like questions, but it's for every lesson. And we've gone through this thing in education where we've asked our teachers to, you know, write a guiding question for each lesson. Um, but I don't know that we've thought about these really big concepts. And that's the only way we're going to get to an integration. Correct. State is we have to be looking at big ideas. So just go through your curriculum, the things that you're doing. And ask yourself, what are the big, what's the one question, or maybe one a semester, either one for the year or one a semester, that everything could fall under? That right. we could, and put that, make a poster out of it or write it permanently uh, up right. all year that you keep going back to. I think that's a place to start. Totally. Here is a question that we are going to spend our time exploring. All year. We will not answer this question in the way that you expect questions to be answered in school. We're going to come up with multiple answers. We're going to come up with hypotheses. We're going to come up with, with approaches we come to not like. We might reject virtually everything that we say in October in January. We're going to riff on a, a problem that we think is important, and we're going to try to figure it out. And guess what? You don't need a study guide because your final is, what's your answer to this question? Correct. <laughs> Correct. And everyone's is going to be different, but it's got to uh, include things that you have discussed and learned about over the course of the semester or right. year. Right. What I care about is looking at how your thinking process has evolved over the year. Tell me about the three things that you struggled most with. Why did you struggle with them? And how has that struggle transformed you, right? That's what we care about. Yeah, and how do these units of study relate right. to one right. another? Right, and totally, right? Science, the pure study of science can and should inform everything, not just within the STEAM disciplines, but elsewhere. Because what does it care about? It cares about data, careful attention to what is factual, thoughtful speculation about how these principles might apply in novel ways. Engineering is about all of those principles applied to solve uh, whatever real-world problems they're being deployed to. The, the mathematical underpinning is about algorithmic thinking. Can you make the solution to a problem break down into individual granular steps that make sense, step by step by step, so that you understand how to solve a problem? Uh, I've been watching the... Um, the Great British Baking Show <laughs> on Netflix, yeah, right? So much of so that much program <laughs> is about science, and frankly, it's about computer science, engineering, and mathematics. Why? The people who come to that program with an engineering background, mm. they don't mess up the technical challenge that they're given 
because they know how to follow a recipe, because they think algorithmically. If you put this egg in at this step, you will screw up your dough. If you put it in here, everything's fine. So are you telling me that STEAM concepts can be taught in your culinary arts class? Full stop, <laughs> right? Because look, what, what do you ultimately get from anything informed by a STEAM mentality or modality? My contention is you get seven benefits, okay? So we'll, maybe we'll end with these seven benefits, okay? okay? Benefit one, the learner gains a greater comfort with their own learning self because they're forced to confront the things they're really good at and the things they're not good at. The more you have to live with your own insecurities and, and obsessions and things you're indifferent about, the better you understand yourself. Without that, there can be no productive self-development. Back to the Renaissance man point, okay? I think what we want is each learner we encounter when they are an adult, to be growing ever more into their authentic self. If all you ever do is provide them with league play and piano lessons and on and on and on and on that come from your sense of what that person needs, what you generally create is the 20s, the 20-year-old or the 30-year-old who has absolutely no idea how to live in the world because you have never asked them to, right? Two, these always enhance creativity. And if we know anything about the nature of the problems we're facing, creative, out-of-the-box thinking, unanticipated, from out of left field ideas are the, <clears throat> are the ones we need to give the most credit to because they're probably going to be the ones that get us close to what the answers need to be. It goes back to the uh, Fortnite or... Super Smash Brothers meta. The creative problem solver overcomes the meta in which the game has become stabilized, introduces a new surprising change, shakes the meta up, and then improves everyone's skill set because the new creative approach requires an innovative, radically different approach to, to, to solving whatever the game problem is. Three, problem solving can be sometimes a little rote. STEAM-informed modalities encourage less rigid, less conventionalist solutions to problem solving because the nature of the problems that you put to the person are not responsive to a conventional solution. So are you saying that when we give problems where we are looking for a specific answer? Right. Like the, this is what you're doing. Conventional problem solving is here's the problem, like a math problem. Here's the problem. I have the answer and I want you to get to it. Right? That's the conventional. But what if it's a problem with multiple different answers or Correct. ways of solving? Right? Correct. That's better. That's better. Okay. There's nothing wrong with the problem that you are the, the, the mathematics problem that is meant to make sure that you understand a specific way of thinking about a mathematical principle. The problem is when that's all you do, 
you leave out everything that matters. Okay? It's so interesting because my fourth and fifth grade teachers at the elementary school, and we got this new math curriculum, again, yes, yes. The, the adoption drives everything, is this curriculum would teach three different methods. You know, mm-hmm. uh, We're on unit five. Uh, lesson one is this method of solving. I wish I had a good example. I don't, I'm not strong enough in, in math to do this. And it was like, uh, you know, let's say adding decimals or something. And there was like, here's one strategy. Right. Lesson one is on this strategy. Lesson two is on this, a different strategy. And lesson three is on a different strategy. The kids were required to demonstrate that they could do all three strategies. However, I believe that the idea behind this was, I'm going to expose you to all three of these. You figure out the one that makes sense to you and run with that. Right. But instead, what was happening is on the the test at the end of the unit, they had to demonstrate proficiency in all three strategies. And there's where it missed the mark. That doesn't make any sense, right? So this is where, you know, when we leave these complex issues in the hands of textbook companies. Right, right. Well-intentioned, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, kind of a miss, right? It's, it's, it's similar in some respects to these sort of Facebook memes that sometimes pop up that drive me crazy that attack uh, Singapore-style mathematics mm-hmm. or, right, that doesn't make any sense. It's just... 31 plus 41 equals 72, and everyone should just be able to do that. It's like, one, no. Half the people in math class from 1850 to 2005, 31 doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make any sense. Neither does 41. They don't, they, they, students have no number sense. And the old way of doing math, when I was a kid, back you know, in the Babylonian Empire, right, was about turning people into calculators. Mm. What we need is to give young people a sense of numbers and how numbers are formed from smaller numbers so that they can understand and think mathematically at all, so that they can then think critically about quantities and data in a way that conventional mathematics instruction doesn't do that, right? Makes me crazy. Um, Okay, four. Okay. If you adopt a STEAM-informed approach to teaching and learning, you obligate teachers to expand their skill set. Not in any particular way, but it has to be expanded. That helps to structure professional development, and I think it helps keep teachers nimble, flexible, and, you know, kind of young of mind. I have no interest in the, well, I figured this out in 1983, and I'm just going to keep doing it. Not in my school, you're not. Right? And, and that's, that's, a, that's a real benefit. Five. By, by, in, by, by being informed by these kind of modalities, everyone in a school develops an increasing tolerance for productive failure. Because you're going to try things that are not going to work. And that's fine. Because now you know that didn't work. What did Edison you know, say? Uh, you know, uh, 10,000 
10,000 light bulbs that didn't work the way I had intended them to, mm -hmm. and one that did. Great. Okay. It's that kind of, you've got to develop that. Because what is real work, what is real life, but trying a thing and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have, uh, if you don't have a sense that that's just what life is, then it becomes kind of wrapped up in all of this kind of self-hating nonsense that is totally unproductive. Six, this kind of work is more publicly facing than I took an exam. It can be critiqued and evaluated by fellow students. It can be critiqued and evaluated by teachers in other disciplines or in other schools or who've never met the kids. That's what makes that sort of video game framework that you talked mm -hmm. about so great because all of those games are social and publicly facing. They're digitally publicly facing. But if you make a big mistake and your team loses because of it, it's publicly facing, right? And I play enough of these games to, to know how acutely I learn to not make a mistake that I have made. Oh, okay. I understand what to do. I won't, I, I won't, I won't do that again. I'll make other mistakes, but I'm not going to make that one. And I would never have learned it if it wasn't publicly facing. And last of all, we live in a world where we've devalued the very kinds of work that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Cobbling, barrel making, and in a very rich, highly uh, uh, post-industrial society like the United States or other societies like ours, you know, Finland, uh, New mm. Zealand, whatever, there's a back-to-basics craftsmanship mm -hmm. uh, uh, intentionality that I would call tinkering, okay? We're recording this at Jennifer's house. I'm looking at her sewing machine and all of her quilting equipment and all of that kind of stuff. This is her jam. Beautiful stuff. I've got one of her quilts hanging in my house. You could buy a machine-manufactured quilt Absolutely. for virtually nothing. Yep. But why would you want it when you could have this? Okay. A great book that I read a number of years ago called... Uh, was called What Technology Wants. This guy named Kevin Kelly, great thinker in in uh, the transformation from in information from industrial to information. Okay, he has this huge uh, chapter about uh, the rapacious tendencies of new technologies to want to kill the old. But he says, at no point does any new technology ever completely kill an old one. The old technology simply accommodates itself to the new reality. And if it had any integrity to begin with, it creates itself anew. This is a podcast. Podcasts are radio reinventing itself. Because we thought television would kill radio. It didn't. Just like the VCR didn't kill going to the movies. Mm -hmm. And on and on and on. And... Quilting will continue to exist. People still knit sweaters. Yeah. Right? People still engage in analog crafting, even though there's no economic reason to. People still buy handcrafted objects at a premium because they are giving value to the craft itself. So we have a great class. Yeah, go. Uh, we have a phenomenal choir. And, oh, yeah. you know, and, and band program, and we have a tech crew. 
So one class in the schedule, and these kids are learning stage management, lighting, sound, and for all of our shows, everything that happens in our auditorium, the kids come and run all that. They set up the sound. Nice. You know, if we have a town hall meeting, which we did, kids came and set up that sound. Kids came and ran that for us. Middle school kids. Middle school kids. So these are 11-year-olds. 12, uh, 13. 13, 12 and 13. 7th okay. and 8th graders. Got it. Got in it. this class. Um, and so they came to me, the teacher came to me a couple of months ago and said, okay, our choir show this year is, um, uh, they're kind of, they're all dressed as hippies and they're doing like <sighs> hazy shade of winter. And, and so yeah, right. we want to make a backdrop out of bandanas. Nice. So we need your help because we know you sew, right? Yeah, and right, we know you right. have a bunch of sewing machines at home too, right? Right, right. <laughs> And so long story short, I told them about, okay, first you have to do the math on this because you, you, you've got to figure out how many bandanas to buy to cover this space and take into account seam allowance. Yeah. You're subtracting. Every time you sew um, a bandana to another bandana, you must subtract out the seam allowance. That's right. Yeah. From both sides. Okay. Except right. if it's on the end. Right. Anyway. <laughs> So quickly, right, right. I give them a real quick explanation on this. They right. bought a bunch of these bandanas. I brought some sewing machines. I uh, called up a friend of mine at the school, too, who also is a master seamstress. And she brought a mas- machine. Anyway, it was the greatest moment in my life because I was sitting there in the auditorium with four sewing machines set up on tables. Awesome. A bunch of kids who were sewing. Right. I, was, I said, this is my greatest day. I'm sewing at work. <laughs> And but kids, we were teaching kids to sew, and we made right. this backdrop, and it's forty feet across right. by you know however tall this whole thing was, and it you know it turned out great, and we had the choir show, and you know the kids loved right making that right, and they learned mm-hmm. not just the the meta skills of learning to work together and. Sewing and craftsmanship has an as an inherent value that will that will improve the lives of these students. But by doing seam allowances, they learned a little math, and they learned that um, you know they they rent backdrops usually. Yes, and it's pretty expensive. Yes, and yeah, if you're in a time crunch and you need a backdrop by next week, you you have to rent something. Right. But with a little bit of planning and forethought, for quite a bit less money, they were able to make their own. Right, right. And that solves a whole host of other problems, mm-hmm. right, that would otherwise not be not be addressed. Um, folks listening, uh, a couple of schools that you might want to go look at that really do this kind of stuff really well. A school up in San Francisco called Brightworks. It's a micro school, so they've got about 100 kids. It's all maker informed. It's all steam informed. It's not. It, it's not your typical STEM or STEAM academy, which is a conventional high school with a STEM or STEAM emphasis, right? It's it's an entirely radically different approach to doing the work. Uh, the school Quest to Learn Q2L, which is a game based learning school in uh, in New York, super interesting. Uh, and then a, a a learning outfit called the Exploratorium that publishes books on on bringing these kinds of notions into into typical classrooms, right? Um, we're at a minute and 23, an hour and 23, so I think we're done. Yes, I yeah. do. So okay. here's, what I want, here's what I want to say to finish this up. 
I what I had hoped we were going to do in this episode was understand a simple way that STEM is integrated into a traditional school. Yeah. And what we've discovered is it's not simple. Yeah, it's not. And it's not um, a package that you buy and just plug into your school. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. What I really want in a future episode is to talk about maker spaces. Indeed. And how to put that into a school. Because that you can do. Because I think that's something where it's like that genius hour, it's the the STEM ideas uh, all coming together in yep. this one space. Yep. And I think I, I've been thinking a lot about this and I really want to integrate it in my school and I need some suggestions and some ideas on what this would look like and how to open it up to uh, the the largest number of students and how to train my teachers on it right. and what just simple things like what do I buy? What do we need in this oh, room yeah. to have a makerspace? So I'd love that to be a future topic that we address. I could totally talk, I could talk about that for at least an hour and 25 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> a great episode, Jennifer. Great episode, John. Thank yeah. you. You really, I think, have taught everybody a lot in this episode, and, myself included. Yeah. Um, my hope is that the community will, uh, will share their thoughts uh, and perspectives on these ideas science and technology, engineering, arts and mathematics, how they connect, uh, how they don't, uh, you know, thoughts about about those perspectives. Share them on our Facebook group. Share them on our webpage. Share them on Twitter if you're so inclined. Email us and, uh, and, and, and let's continue the work. Thanks, Jennifer. Good to see you, John. Okay, bye.